Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning, and uh, happy Resurrection Day uh, that we choose to celebrate and remember that today. We are still in our series, and it fits actually really well, uh, The Cross, and we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've been working through this book throughout um, the last several weeks, and uh, we're going to continue. And remember, kind of the theme of 1 Corinthians, the theme that we keep coming back to is the verse that says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved, right? So the message of the cross, which we look at and think of during this season, is the idea that the pathway to actually find true life is by dying to ourselves, by giving up our life. And see, Christianity is unique in that. Christianity is a religion that says you need to give up your rights, you need to give up your life for others so that you can gain eternal life. There are other religions that say you should give up your life, but it's not for the purpose of serving a God, it's for your own glory. It's for your own ability to become a God or to become enlightened or to become to a different level. That, that's not the message of Christianity. We're going to look at that more today, but the message of the idea of the cross, of giving your life to people who don't deserve it. And not just separating yourself from the world, but actually engaging the world, allowing yourself to suffer, allowing yourself to die, because you believe that there's a resurrection. You believe that there's going to be a new earth, that you're going to get a new body, there's going to be a new way of doing things. So it makes it worth it. That's a unique message. And so that's what Paul, when he's writing this book, is trying to get this Corinthian church to see. We've talked about this the last several weeks. The church in Corinth was very similar to our culture. It was a place that everybody came to, to do trade. It was a place of great wealth. It was a place that you could believe whatever you wanted to believe. It was a place of incredible sexual sin and sexual desire because they had the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth where there were thousands of temple prostitutes and you could have sex any way you wanted if you had enough money and enough time. And so again, this, this culture that Paul is writing to in Corinth is so similar to the one we see here. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at all of these different messages, the cross, foolishness and understanding, wisdom, spiritual people, found faithful, sincerity and truth, settling disputes, single marriage, idols of yesterday and today. We have the right, questions of conscience, imitate me from the spirit. Last week, Mark covered one of the famous chapters from 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. Mark talked about love never ending, that there's an eternal love of God. Now this week, we should be doing chapter 14. I actually prepared the message for chapter 14. And it doesn't really fit well with this week. It actually fits well with a few days from now, which I'll tell you about. So I, checked the, I texted the staff team, or actually slacked them, and said, hey, rethinking the fact that I'd prepared this message, maybe I should skip to chapter 15 because chapter 15 is all about, you know what? The resurrection. So probably a good idea of me to skip over chapter 14 to talk about the resurrection on the day that we remember the resurrection. Okay, so that's why we're skipping 14. And in chapter 15, what Paul does and what he says he's going to do is he says, look, I've got to clarify the gospel. Now, what does the word gospel mean? The gospel means the good news about what God said is going to happen and who he is. It's the good news about the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, the name Jesus Christ is not first name, last name. 
The name Jesus Christ means Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, who is the Savior. That's what his name means. That's the title given to him. And so Paul's writing and he says, look, I've talked about all these issues with you. You have all these questions. You have all these factions. You have all these problems within the church. He, he kind of addresses some of those questions. Then he talks about spiritual things. He moves into talking about spiritual things. And in the midst of talking about spiritual things, he pauses because he's like, you know, you can get so spiritual that you forget what love really is and what true spiritual love looks like. And true spiritual love can be hard. It can also be soft in the way you approach it. And then after he gets done teaching, which we'll see next week on spiritual gifts, after he gets done teaching about spiritual gifts, he like pauses and says, okay, I've said a lot to you. I've taught you a lot over the last several chapters. I've got to get back down to the simple message of why I started this book. I've got to clarify to you what's really true because there are a lot of people who are out there confusing you over what the true message of good news really is. There's lots of people today who says, this is good news, and this, what is really good news? Most of the news we hear, we find out they lied to us after we get it. <laughs> well, I thought it was good news, but now I found out they were lying. They didn't have all the information. So is there anything that's like really good news out there? And Paul says, well, that's what I need to clarify with you. So we jump right in. 1 Corinthians 15.1, if you have your Bibles, or if you have your phones, you can go to our webpage, you can find the list of scriptures there. They'll all be on the screen. He says, now brothers, so he's been teaching, he's been talking, and he comes to this point, and he says, now brothers and sisters, he, he says, those of you who say you believe, he doesn't say, now those of you who don't believe in Christianity, he purposely says, those of you who say that you are a Christian, that you believe in the message of the good news about Jesus, I want to clarify for you the gospel. Now think about this. This is a church that's heard a lot. They've been Christians. They're standing up for their faith, being persecuted by the world around them. And Paul still feels the need to keep coming back to the simplicity of the message of the gospel and salvation. We lose that in our culture every day. We have all these factions and divisions that Paul talks about and he lays out. And in the midst of that, we forget to come back to say, okay, what really is the gospel? And should I be divided over this issue because it goes against the gospel? Or am I just divided over this issue because I'm a jerk? Like, like, those are real questions that we need to ask or because I'm selfish. And Paul says, he goes on, to clarify the gospel I proclaim to you. So he proclaimed it. You received it. So he says, I proclaimed it. You said yes. You raised your hand. You received it and said, I believe that message. And you have taken your stand on it. And not only have you received it, but you've actually said, I'm going to believe it and take my stand in life on this message. He says, you are also saved by it. So not only do you take your stand, but you're taking your stand in this life knowing that this life ends in death, but believing that there's salvation after death. He says, if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believed for no purpose. So he looks and he says, look, there are a lot of messages that people are holding on to that are not the gospel. They, they've believed, he says here, 
for no purpose or the wrong purpose. This is so easy to do. It is so easy to believe kind of a lesser gospel that doesn't really cost us, that doesn't really require us to give up our lives, to die to ourselves, as Jesus said, to pick up our cross and follow him. And we see this all over our culture. I was talking to a guy this week, and we got into a conversation about a famous pastor sells millions of books. And he looked at me across the table and he was like, what is up with that guy? Is is that really the picture of Christianity? And he began to explain some things that he knew about the situation. And I looked at him and I said, it's actually much worse than that. And I began to explain to him some of the much worse things that this guy participated in and the way he did finances that made him a multimillionaire at the cost of others and at the cost of making sure he didn't pay any taxes to the federal government. And I said, the worst part is, is it's all legal. So we had this conversation. See, there are people that believe the gospel for wealth. And there are people that will support those people that believe the gospel for wealth because they want to be wealthy too and they don't want their wealth to be challenged. It's not wrong to be wealthy. There were many wealthy people in the Bible. It's not wrong. It's not evil. It's not more righteous to be poor. Sometimes you're poor because you do stupid stuff, right? The issue is why? Why did you believe this, he says. I proclaimed it. You said you received it. You say you're saved by it. You've taken your stand. And then he says, but are you still holding on to that message? Do you still believe it? I mean, we've got people coming to church right now around the world for the first time in two years. They haven't been to church since COVID broke out. And they skipped it at Christmas because Delta was variant was raging. And they think that that, that's something good to do. I'm coming and proclaiming, I believe this. Look, God is good. I believe he's going to save me someday. And Jesus says there are going to be those who come to me one day and say, look at all we did. Look at all the moral things, the righteous things we did. And he's going to look at them and say, depart from me into eternal torment. I never knew you. Those are his words, not mine. That's a, that should give us pause, like Paul says here, to say, do, do I really believe this? Does my life reflect it? Do I believe this? And see, Paul's laid out all this stuff, and now he's saying, look, we, i got to really clarify this with you, because there's so much confusion over the, the simple message of the good news about who Jesus is. And the purpose of you believing the good news is why we celebrate today. There's a resurrection coming so you don't have to worry about all you're getting. Because it doesn't matter if you've got a great lot in life or a bad lot in life. You know what everybody has to do? Die. Every one of us. And you can't control it. You have no idea when you're going to go to the doctor and they're going to tell you it's over. Yesterday, we had a big fundraiser. My son and some of the other people in our church were a part of for a a coach here locally whose wife had just survived cancer and the same week she got her I'm cancer-free diagnosis, he got a diagnosis of you're lucky if you have a few months to live. It faces us all. 
And Paul is saying, look, that the message of the gospel is very important to clear up. When Jesus was crucified, celebrate Good Friday, look at what happens. See, everybody's divided over Jesus. Everybody wants to know Jesus, but they don't want to surrender to him. They want him in his corner. They want to be able to go to him when they need a grant for their research. They want to go to Jesus when they, they want to rub his head and be like, get something. No, but they don't want to surrender their life to him, and they don't want to surrender their life to his family. In Luke 23, this week, in my quiet times, I was reading this, and this popped up. Luke 23, 22 says this. Two other criminals. So this is Jesus when he was crucified. It says, two other criminals were also led away to be executed with Jesus. So there were three crosses on the hill of Golgotha. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Crucifixion was death. I've said this before, but some of you don't know this. Crucifixion is death by suffocation, by asphyxiation. You drown in your own fluids. It is the worst form of punishment. It was designed to be that way because the Romans wanted to say, either you obey us and do what we say, or this is what happens. And we'll make it miserable for you. Jesus was stripped down naked. He didn't have a nice little white cloth on when he was on the cross. He was stark naked hanging there, having been beaten for no reason, because he never sinned. All he did was challenge the mess of his day and call people out and say, what you're doing is wrong. And he also said, what you're doing is right. And people couldn't stand someone who thought they actually were God. So they crucified him, and Jesus, on the cross, as he's been beaten, as he's been stripped naked, as he's been hung and driven through his feet and hands, nails, pulls himself up so he can say out loud to the world and to his heavenly Father, Father, forgive these people, forgive these two criminals. They have no idea what the gospel is. They don't understand what they're doing. And then he dropped back down. I don't know about you. I'd rather just hang there and die, not try to talk. And Jesus is getting up and in the midst of, of the mess, he's still saying, God, don't kill him. What's happening right now is the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind. Please spare your wrath and put it on me. That should humble us. And look what happens. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews funny that they put that above him. It was supposed to be mocking, but in reality, they were prophesying. He really was the king of the Jews. And it's always amazing how people will mock God. They will mock him, and eventually it comes back around, and it's amazing how God uses it to show that it really is who he is. And all the way through Jesus's crucifixion process, you see this. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Two criminals. Jesus raises up. He cries out. They hear him. This criminal, in his arrogance and pride, rises up to be able to curse the Son of God standing next to him. 
with all of his muster and might, he looks at him and he says, if you really are, if the gospel's really true and it's really clear, then, then you know what? Save yourself. And then the criminal shows what's really at his heart. Oh, and save me too. You say we can be forgiven. You just got up and said, Father, forgive them. Well, sh- show me something. Show me a sign. Jesus said it's an evil and adulterous generation that demands a sign. It's evil people who look at people and say, I'll have a relationship with you, I'll love you, I'll do something for you, but you do something for me first. Jesus says that is an evil, wicked heart. Because God created the world, gave it to us as a gift, requiring nothing. Except don't eat from one tree. We couldn't even obey that. He goes on. This man raises up and he says, if you are the Messiah, if you're who you say you are, then then you know what? Prove it. Now watch this. This is amazing. Three guys dying, gasping, and they're having an argument, hanging on crosses about the guy between them. And you wonder why we argue about Jesus today. I mean, I would have been thinking about something else. And these guys are still arguing about the guy in the middle. Look what happens. It goes on and says this. But the other answered, rebuking the other guy. So he like pulls up and looks around and is like yelling at the guy on the other side. He says, don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? You're going to mock a guy that's dying the same way you are? You have no mercy? This guy just rose up and said, Father, forgive them. And you're rising up to mock a guy that's dying the same death you are. Isn't that what we do? We love to mock other people instead of pointing them to the reality that we're all in a big, big mess and we need a savior. And I am no better than the guy hanging next to me at all. We are on a level playing field at the foot of the cross. Don't you fear? We are punished justly, this criminal says. Remember, he has to pull himself up. He talks the longest. (laughs) We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. So this thief on the cross recognizes that Jesus is perfect. He recognizes that Jesus is different than us. He's different than any human being. And then he says, then he said, Jesus, Yahweh who saves. He looks at him and says, hey, Yahweh who can save. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man says, I know you're going to die, I know I'm going to die, and I know he's going to die, and we're not getting out of this alive, but I believe in another life, and I believe you're the one that grants that life, and so I'm not asking you to give me anything, I'm not asking you to save me, I'm not asking you to fix anything, a matter of fact, I can't fix anything because I'm getting ready to die, I am just asking you please to remember me that I won't perish eternally. Look at what Jesus answers. Jesus said to him, I assure you, I promise you, today you'll be with me in paradise. See, this is why the gospel is so amazing. This guy did nothing to earn salvation. There are no works this man does. He can't like get off the cross and go make up for some stuff. 
He is saved because he believes that Jesus is who he really says he is. And with what life he has left, he submits it to Jesus. The other guy in pride and arrogance says, I'll submit my life to you, but you got to come through for me, God, and prove yourself. And we are still having that argument today. And the religions of the world are all about works. They're all about saying, if you do enough good things, if you use your life, like get me off the cross, then I'll serve you, then maybe you'll make it into heaven if you do good enough things. Christianity is the only religion that says you can't do anything. You don't have the power to do anything. You don't have the strength to do anything. You're a dead man walking. But there's a guy who wants to save you and give you the promise that you can have a life eternally, and that in living for that life eternally, it will change your life on earth. It's a unique message. And the criminal hanging next to him had to just be there in his pride and think, he's going to be with you in paradise? I wonder if he thought about how more wicked that guy was than he was. Paul goes on to say, therefore, whether we are at home or away, this is in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes a second letter to the church in Corinth to kind of tell them some other things because we constantly need to be reminded. We make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the tribunal or the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we know the gospel, we seek to persuade people We seek to persuade people that there's a God who loves them and wants to change their life. And he wants them to go out and persuade people that Jesus is really who he says he is. Listen, why do we keep holding people to a moral standard they don't believe in and they can't obey without the power of the Holy Spirit? If we would think through that for a minute, we would change our conversations. And instead of asking people to measure up to our standards, we would say, do you believe in Jesus? Do you understand who he is? Do you surrender to him? Do you understand... And then if they said yes, then we start holding them to standards. Well, if you believe in Jesus, why don't you do these things? That's what the first section of 1 Corinthians is all about. Instead, we're constantly holding people to moral standards without giving them the gospel. That's just wicked. They don't even have the power to obey it, the Bible says, without the Holy Spirit. I always tell people, that people talk about sharing their faith. How do I persuade people? How do I talk about my faith in Jesus? How about this? Lead with the gospel. What does that mean? It's real simple. Let people know you believe in Jesus. That's leading with the gospel. Because if you don't, they will make up all the reasons they think you're a nice person. Well, you grew up with good parents and you, you grew up in wealth or you grew up in poor and, and your works and you really tried hard and you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps and I don't have that kind of will. And You have got to lead, we have got to lead with the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is so that they can then see our lives and our lives can persuade them. And you say, well, my life's not very persuasive. <laughs> I'm a wreck. <laughs> Welcome to the Bible. <laughs> Have you read about our heroes of the faith? They're a wreck. But they kept coming back to hope in Christ and his forgiveness. He goes on and says this. We are completely open before God, and I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. Paul says, open your life up to people. Let them see. Jesus was hung naked on a cross to open himself up and to say, this is what it looks like. 
to give up your life and to take the punishment for the world. Paul goes on to say, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So Paul's saying, look, I just am giving you what I've received. It's not like some special, somebody gave it to me and I'm giving it to you. It's not like I have the goods. I didn't earn it. I didn't make it. It was a free gift given to me and I give it away as a free gift. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive and tell you they saw him. But some have died. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother. Then to the apostles, all the apostles. And last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. You say, what does Paul mean by abnormally born? Basically, he's saying, I didn't get to see him be resurrected. I saw him later. I'm the abnormal apostle, Paul says. All the other apostles saw him resurrected, saw him in a room, got to touch him, got to hang out with him, got to eat fish with him. It was wonderful. I didn't. He just appeared to me on a road. He says, I'm like the abnormal apostle because I'm not like the other guys. I don't have the testimony of eyewitness, but I can tell you there are a lot of eyewitnesses. Let me ask you this. He says twice according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The New Testament wasn't compiled yet. It's even questionable if the New Testament Gospels had been written by this point. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What scriptures is Paul referring to that it's absolutely clear that he died according to our sins? That he did this according, that he was going to raise on the third day? What scriptures are he talk, is he talking about? The Old Covenant, the Old Testament. I've said this multiple times. Could you share Jesus without a New Testament? With just using the Old Testament? Could you share and show the story of God for generations and thousands of years without having the New Testament to share it? It's amazing to me that we print New Testaments to hand out without the Old Testament, but we never print the Old Testament to hand out without the new one. Why? Paul shared with the Old Testament. All the apostles used the Old Testament. Paul used the Old Testament with Gentiles to share the gospel because he didn't have anything else. Now, do I like the New Testament? Absolutely. We're reading it. I love it. These are the scriptures. It's awesome. But Paul is saying this message of the gospel is not something new. It didn't just pop up out of nowhere. It has been proven throughout all of human history. It's according to the scriptures. Let me show you something that you probably have never been taught, and it breaks my heart that you've probably never been taught it if you, unless you've been in our church. And even then, you probably have forgotten it. Here it is. How much of that do you even know what it is? I got some fancy words up there. This is the story of what Paul's talking about. See, God's people were slaves in Egypt. And God brought them out of Egypt. That was the Passover. They put blood over the doorposts so that God would pass over their sin. And anybody could be saved. Any of the Egyptians could have killed a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost and none of their children would die. But the Egyptians, like the thief on the cross over here, stood in their pride and said, oh, no, no, we will not surrender. 
And God didn't kill just their firstborn. God was willing to give his only son before he took their son. See, God never takes what he isn't willing to take. We do, he doesn't. And he knew that his plan was to send his son. So as an example, he said, you can save your sons and daughters if you believe in the blood of my son. And Passover is actually the first of the year in the Hebrew calendar. It's when the year starts because it's when they were delivered from slavery. Do you know what the next day after Passover is? It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you know what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is? It's when they start the feast and what they would do is they would go into their homes and they would clean out all the leaven or yeast out of their homes in every nook and cranny. They would even get rid of utensils that they used. It was crazy what they would do. And in the Bible, yeast always represents sin. So when you understand that Jesus had paid the price for your sin, that the past, God had passed over your sin, you get serious about saying, God, I want all the sin, all the yeast, all the leaven out of my life because I just want you to raise my life up from nothing instead of depending on yeast to do it. This is a 6,000-year-old process. Then he goes on, and the day after unleavened bread, you know what that is? The day of first fruits. Today, Resurrection Sunday. It's the Feast of First Fruits. It's the idea that Jesus, are you ready for this? Is the first fruit of the new covenant resurrected on our behalf. He is the first to come back to life from the dead who doesn't die again. There were other people resurrected in the Bible. You know what all happened to them? They all died again. <laughs> Jesus never died again. And so they would remember the fact that God brought us out and they would bring in the barley. They would bring in the barley harvest, the first of their harvest. They'd be, God, anything we have is yours. You've saved us. You've, you, you want us to deal with our sin. You're taking care of our sin. And Lord, we just want to give back whatever little we have. This is just the beginning of what we have. So here's the little bit I have. And if you provide more, I'll give you more. But Lord, thank you. And then what they would do after that is they would start counting the Omar. They would start counting the days. And they would count the days until they got to Shavat, which is Pentecost, which is the idea of when they got delivered and they delivered from slavery. They went to Mount Sinai, and at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were given the Torah, the Word of God. So they were counting the days until they were given the Word of God and could worship God fully like they couldn't do in Egypt. Jesus is transfigured in front of them and goes into heaven on Shabbat and then the Holy Spirit comes and fills them which we'll look at next week and then he goes on and then you start looking for the day of trumpets that's Rosh Hashanah that comes in the fall so now the people are looking that there's going to be a trumpet blast that blasts to remind the people that they need to deal with their sin because God is coming back and then there was the Day of Atonement so they could deal with their sin and pay the price and they would make the sacrifice of the bull. And then there's tabernacles. And when all that's done, it said that the God would come and tabernacle and eat with them. Set up a table. Revelation says there's going to be a table for us one day, a banquet table that we'll eat with Jesus. And then it's the Festival of Lights. Because Revelation says that in the New Jerusalem, God will be our light forever. That's the Old Testament gospel. 
This is a 6,000-year-old story. You can't make this up. This is crazy weird and accurate. Either this is true or we're the nuttiest bunch, which is what Paul gets ready to go on to say. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, By God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not ineffective. In other words, I've gone through the process of dealing with sin in my life. I want to worship him. I've, I've been his witness to the world. However, I worked more than any of them. Yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Three times Paul says it's all God's grace. He even talks about and recognizes the fact that I work harder than most of the other apostles, but it's still God's grace. Not I'm better than Peter. Do we recognize that it's God's grace? That if God doesn't work, if he doesn't save us, if he doesn't pass over, if he doesn't help us to clean up our lives, if he doesn't meet us, if he doesn't give us his word, if he doesn't give us his power on the Holy Spirit, that, that we're done? Because that's what grace does to you. When you recognize grace, it changes you like it changed Paul. You can't just like pray to Jesus, get baptized, and then go on about your life. If that's you, you may want to question what you believe, like Paul said in the beginning. What did you believe in? What purpose were you trusting God for? Because he really is God? Or because you were expecting something from him? Look, there is nothing worse than being in a relationship with someone that has a business deal with you. That's, they won't give themselves to you. They're constantly at odds of like, well, first you do and then I'll do. There's no one that, th that, make, that puts you in the position of God. And there's nothing more refreshing than someone that does something for you when you've been a bonehead. And they still love you. They tell you you're a bonehead and they still give you or bless you or whatever and you're just like, I don't deserve that. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's laying out. He goes on to say this. Therefore, whether it is I or they, that's the other apostles, the other believers that are leaders, we proclaim and so you have believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? This was a debate. This was a debate from people that would say, well, we're not living for the resurrection of the dead. We actually believe it's a metaphor that God wants us to have our best life now. It's not really about resurrection from the dead. It's, it's about we're, we're resurrected now and we get to have the life we want and we get to demand the life we want. And it's all about jockeying and making everything right so I can get and I feel good and I have what I want. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Paul says, then what's the point? And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation and so is your faith. Folks, there is... If you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith collapses. All they had to do was produce the body of Jesus and it was over. All they had to do was to execute the disciples and say, we believe you stole the body and we executed you. And they didn't do any of that because everyone was so confused about a resurrected person that they didn't know what to do. And there was a Roman guard, and so for the Roman guard to have let the disciples come and steal the body of Jesus, they would have all been executed publicly by crucifixion. That would have made Rome look bad, and that would have made Jesus, the question of Jesus, go out into the world. They were stuck in a rock in a hard place because this guy came back from the dead, and everybody's authority looked bad. 
I wish we had authorities in our world that would humble themselves to say, I was wrong, but we don't. We just got to keep doubling down on stupid. Paul says, either we're wrong and this message is over or we're right. And it changes everything. He goes on to say, in addition, not only are we wrong, but we're actually found to be false witnesses about God. Because we have testified that God, about God, that he raised up Christ. So it's not just like we told a little fib. We're liars to the core. Whom he did not raise up. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. In other words, There's no deliverance from sin. If Christ died for sin and didn't come back to life, you know what that means you get to do? Just die for your sins. Yay. (laughs) Great. But because he came back to life, it says, no, I've paid the penalty, and now I'm going to do something that a dead person can't do, come back to life. And so you can trust him to do that regardless of the mess and the sin. Romans 5, Paul writes this, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, the gift of Jesus. This free gift of salvation is not like the sin. For if by one man's trespass, that's Adam in the Garden of Eden, the many died, how much more has the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? And the gift is not like one man's sin because from one sin came the judgment on all of us resulting in condemnation. We see this in nature. It only takes one person to have a virus to spread it to everyone else. Sound familiar? One person. We are viral factories. We love to infect one another. It's what the human race has done forever. We've wiped out entire populations around the globe, not just through colonization, before colonization. We have wiped out people because of stupid decisions to eat stuff and do stuff we shouldn't do, and diseases that just mutate and pop up. We're a mess. And God says, there's hope. He goes on, he says, since The one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See, there's no way we can stand before God. Paul says the only way that happens is if it's true about what Jesus did. Christianity is the only religion that says we're all sinners, all have fallen short of the glory of God, we're all on an equal playing field, and if God doesn't save us, it's over. All the other religions say you can save yourself, you can get God, you can manipulate your God, you can manipulate your your essence or your being to get what you want. Christianity says not possible. So if you're going to dismiss a religion when you're considering all the religions of the world, please dismiss Christianity first which means you have to dismiss the person of Jesus first. Dismiss his love, dismiss his justice, dismiss his truth, dismiss his resurrection, dismiss it all. That's the first thing you have to dismiss. 
Paul goes on to say, Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. But if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, look at what he says, we should be pitied more than anyone. If you're trusting in Jesus because of what he can give you, or you're trusting in Jesus because you're hoping to get something by trusting in him, you're hoping to get that spouse, to get that job, to get that future, to get this, fill in the blank, whatever it is. If that's what your trusting is, Paul says he has pity for you. And he says we should pity people who believe Jesus for that and only that. Does that mean we shouldn't ask for those things? No, not at all. That can't be our hope. Our hope has to be in the resurrection and the death of ourselves. And God says, as you die, you trust me to bring the gifts into your life that you need to do what I've asked you to do to represent me to the world. In Philippians, Paul writes this. I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth. So that I may gain Christ. So that I might gain the relationship I've always been looking for. And to be found in him, not having a, look at this, a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. He says, I used to live that life where I was trying to use everybody and prove myself and trying to get in good with God. That's dead to me. So now I have faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him, and look at what he says, the power of his resurrection. You know how the only way you can know the power of resurrection? Read on. And the fellowship of his sufferings. (laughs) Read on. And I will somehow reach, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. You want to truly love Jesus? You want to truly feel like you know him? Allow him to put you through what he went through. For the benefit of others and not yourself. You do that, you'll know Jesus. You'll know his sufferings and you can be assured that when you come down to the end of your life, you're not like the criminal over here mad and up on the cross and saying, who are you? You better do something for me. You'll be like the other guy that says, I don't deserve any of this. I deserve nothing. And you don't deserve this either, but will you at least remember me? Goes on to say this, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Paul goes back and he uses the Old Testament word for first fruits. He says he's the first to become resurrected. You guys were getting ready to celebrate first fruits and you didn't realize that the reason that the festival of first fruits even existed is because Jesus was going to come alive on first fruits. It's the point of the festival. Right? I mean, we do this all the time. We... What's the purpose of Thanksgiving? This is not a trick question. What's the purpose of Thanksgiving? Thank you, Brian, to give thanks. How many Thanksgiving dinners do you go to and there's arguments? Most. We always forget the reason and the purpose behind things. That's why Paul says I've got to remind you and clarify the gospel because it's just so easy to forget. Why am I even doing this? 
He goes on and he says, For since the death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through one man. In other words, the one man Adam sinned and sent the virus of sin and the virus of the curse on all of us. And now Jesus comes, he goes ahead and dies and then comes back to life to give us a new body that doesn't get sick anymore. We just don't have that body yet until we die. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There's an order that Christ is the first one raised. Afterwards, there are others. Then he's going to come again, and then all of us will be raised up. That's what Paul says. That's the message of the good news of the gospel. That in the Old Testament, everybody was looking forward to the day when God would raise them up. Do you know the one thing they cared, They were made sure they carried out of Egypt? Do you know the one thing that they made sure they carried out of Egypt and took with them when they left? Who's? Joseph's. Joseph's bones. Joseph said, take my bones. You were close. Joseph's bones. You're carrying around a dead man's bones. Why? Because they actually believed God was going to put life back on it. They were believing in advance in the resurrection even though they hadn't seen it. That's what we're doing. Everybody looks forward to the day when Christ will save us, all the way from Adam, all the way through. It's the same gospel message. He goes on to say, now in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you. I'm sorry, go back for a second. So he says it's the first fruits. Now, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. The Lord's Supper is the representation of the body and the blood of Christ. It's the representation of what Christ did for ourselves that we, it's the Passover. The body is representative that we take his body and it's an idea of we're getting a new body. All of this is what we think through. It's not real. That's not the actual blood of Jesus. It will taste like grape juice. It's not the actual body of Jesus. It'll taste like a little cheap wafer. All it is is a symbol of saying, I believe that the blood of Christ and I believe the body of Christ is what can save humanity and save me. And I'm looking forward to a day when it's not just a little bit, but I have the fullness of the relationship with Jesus. See, that's what the Lord's Supper and Communion is. It's not something to do to prove yourself to God, to say, look, God, I'm doing this for you. No, that's the thief over here. You don't want to be him. It's representative of saying, I am remembering what I could never do for myself, and I'm remembering that the entire story of the Bible is that mankind has to die, someone has to pay the price, that someone was Jesus, and now we're all waiting for him to come back to make everything right. And my job is to go out and tell people there is a savior for you. You don't need Captain America. You don't need Superman. You don't need another marriage. You don't need another kid. You don't need all this stuff. None of that's bad. I like Marvel a lot. Brian hates it. But anyway, like, it's, that's the purpose is to remember. And that's what Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians because they were doing communion wrongly. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed to you. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks. If you're not going to the communion table giving thanks, then don't go. 
Don't go. Ask yourself why you can't give thanks for the most amazing thing that all of human history hinges on. This isn't I'm going to the communion table to get something. It's I'm going just to say thank you with the first fruits of my life. Listen, if you're not a believer and you're questioning whether you should become a believer, you can trust Christ right now and the first thing you can do is go to communion and you get given a gift of grape juice and a gift of a little wafer and you could say, God, I'm giving this back to you. I'm taking this as a gift back to you. It was given to me, now I give it. It's a beautiful picture, Paul says. And then he says, he gave thanks He broke it because his body was going to be broken. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, they were celebrating the Passover Seder. It was to remember all the Old Testament feasts and festival. And Jesus looks at them and says, all of that's about me. Now when you read about it, when you think about it, when you look back on it, you remember that all of it pointed to me. There's a new way to remember things and it's not about a life you want and a promised land you want here because I can promise you there ain't no promised land here that's going to fulfill you. Only the one that Jesus brings. We've been trying to do that for about 200, 250 years in this country and it's not going well. And the rest of the world kind of despises our promised land because we keep elevating ourselves as we're better than everybody else and guess what? People don't like that. That's why they killed Jesus. He goes on, he says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, established not by the blood of the lambs and the bulls and the goats and the doves, but established by my blood. So all the sacrificial system, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, every single one of them was to point to this moment when I would shed my blood. And then he says, do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, look at what he says, you proclaim the Lord's resurrection until he comes. It's not what it says. It says you proclaim the Lord's death because it reminds you that you have to die to yourself and you need a resurrection. He could have said resurrection. He didn't. He said you've got to remember the need to die to yourself. Then he goes on, Paul says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy man, in another worthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. That means you're, you're sinning against the people in this room. If you're going to go take communion because you're embarrassed and you don't want people to wonder why you're not taking communion, don't do that. That's an embarrassment. Don't do it. Just don't take it if you're not ready to take it, if your heart's not in the right place. It's okay. And, and then go to God and say, God, help me. I want my heart to be in the right place. Or how about this? God, I recognize my heart's in the, not in the right place, so I confess it's not in the right place. I trust you for resurrection, and I just want to do communion to remember you and give you thanks that you're patient with me and you'll help me. And then you take communion. That's the process. He goes on, he says, so a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When he says the body, that's a loaded question. Number one, you have to eat and drink recognizing what? Your own body. That's why you're putting food in your face. Because you recognize this is my body in my, in my, whoop, down the hole. 
So that's the first part. You recognize your death. Your body needs sustenance. Your body needs to be repaired. Your body needs something outside of yourself. Then you remember Jesus' body that was shed for you. And then you take communion with other believers, not alone at your kitchen table, because it's the reminder that you need the body of Christ, that we do this together because we're many parts of the body in one. That's why the Lord's Supper was to be celebrated with others. And anytime you take the Lord's Supper and you're not thinking through those things, Paul's like, don't do that. As we wrap up, 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Paul wraps up his clarification of the gospel and he says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. If we've learned anything through this COVID pandemic, it is that we are afraid of the ultimate enemy. Death. People are scared to death of death. And they will do anything regardless of the consequences of how it affects someone else, to preserve their life. They will lie. They will cheat. They won't think through things properly. They'll make quick decisions. They won't think about long-term consequences. So I can save my life or maybe the life of the ones I love. And God says, I give my life and I ask the ones I love to give their lives. It's a different message than the world around us. And the world will lie to us. The world will tell us, oh yeah, yeah, I kind of believe the gospel, but don't just go too far. Don't be too serious. No, be real serious. Because if this isn't real, then we are to be pitied, the Bible says. And communion is the reminder that our last enemy is death And when I take the body and blood of Christ, I realize that if he came back to life as the first fruits, then I have a hope just like the thief over here on the right, your left. Just like the thief here who says, I believe you are who you say you are. Will you remember me? Jesus says, of course. Will you remember me? Listen, if you don't know Jesus, It's not a hard thing. All you have to do is ask him for forgiveness. It's saying, God, I recognize I'm a sinner like this guy over here. I recognize I have nothing to offer you. I surrender my life and I believe you are who you say you are, that you are the God of the universe, you're the savior of the universe, that the entire story of humanity in the Bible is real and it's true and I surrender to you believing that you'll love me, that you'll make me new, that that I can live my life now towards death for a different purpose that will mean something and I can believe that there's life after. And you can just surrender and say, God, I'm sorry, I I surrender to you. And I embrace your forgiveness and there's nothing I have to do to earn. But God, I'm telling you, I'm grateful and I can't wait to serve you for what you've already done. See, that's the difference. And if you're there, man, online, pray that prayer. Consider what Paul says. Be careful. For those of you who are believers, we're going to celebrate communion. Celebrate it. Jesus came back to life. That when you celebrate and remember your death and your sin that he paid for, and you remember the mess of your life in this past week and month or whatever, maybe you had a great week. Either way, remember that the one who gave you a great week asked you to remember that it's not always going to be great. 
and I still have you. You're still mine, and I love you. Communion is a time for us to celebrate. This season of first fruits, of resurrection, is a time for us to celebrate. We're all moving towards Good Friday, and God promises, God promises that there is a first fruit for us who know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word and to love you well through it. Lord, I thank you for Paul who clarifies for us the gospel so that we can truly understand its message. Lord, forgive us when we muddy it up and we try to make it so complicated when it's just so simple. It's what do we believe about you? And Lord, we want to try to get all these things right in life, thinking they're going to get us something or prove something or make something work. And Father, that's just not true. We've got to get our relationship with you right, and you're the one that made it right. So this morning, if there's anyone here who's not surrendered their life to you, I pray today would be the day they surrender. And they would feel your forgiveness. They would understand who you are. And for the first time in their life, the weight that they carry would be lifted off. They would no longer have to be afraid of death because you've given them the promise of resurrection. Not because of what they've done, but because it's a free gift offered to them. And I pray they take that offer today. And for those of us who are believers, I pray that as we take communion, we give thanks. And for those who may be struggling this morning, Lord, I pray that they would be able in their heart to by faith trust you that you'll work, that you'll be long-suffering with them. If they're not ready for communion, I pray they'd examine their heart and they'd confess and take communion. For those who aren't believers, I pray they would consider the claims that you have. Maybe it might take a little bit longer, but I pray they would consider them. Well, we thank you that you gave us something to remember you by that was just so simple. An everyday thing. Juice and bread. And we praise you for it. Help us to give thanks to you in your name. Amen.